my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. A graduate of the esteemed Howard University, a historically Black college in Washington, D.C., Ashanti Martinez serves in the Maryland House of Delegates, making him the first openly LGBTQ plus member of the General Assembly from Prince George's County. And I am honored that Delegate Martinez has taken time to join me today to share his life and politics as an openly gay man. Greetings and welcome. How are you? Well, thank you so much for having me. We're recording midweek, so how's your week been so far? It's been good. We adjourned Sine Die from session on Monday at midnight. So I've been recovering ever since. Yesterday, Tuesday, we had my first bill signing. I was at the Capitol on Tuesday with uh, our governor and everyone to have that bill signed. So it's been busy even in the interim, but a really good week so far. Congratulations. I did see that on your social media. Um, so what exactly is the bill? Yeah, so HB 401 alters the definition of audiologists to ensure that it aligns with federal guidelines to ensure that they can also prescribe and distribute over-the-counter hearing aids. Right now, audiologists are allowed to fit and design hearing aids for folks and be able to distribute them, but not for over-the-counter. And so this will help provide those that are hard of hearing additional options. Oh, well, again, congratulations. So what is involved in presenting a bill to be passed? It could be done a few different ways. The most traditional way is that you get stakeholders together, whether that's from industry, community, or a combination of both around a particular issue. You then draft the legislation working with the Department of Legislative Services. That legislation is then given a bill number once it's filed, and then it's assigned to it a committee. What's assigned to that committee, it goes through the subcommittees and you have a hearing. Once you go through that hearing, the committee still deliberates about the bill. There might be amendments, there might be you know additions, subtractions, that type of thing to ultimately make the best work product. Then it goes back to your chamber. So for example, in the House of Delegates, it'll come back to the House for second reader. If it has amendments, those are when the amendments are presented. And then it goes back to the body as third reader, and then it passes and then moves over to the other chamber. And it goes through that same process in the other chamber. If there are any disagreements about the language from the Senate to the House or what they want, they have a conference committee, um, and you work those things out through there. And ultimately, if it works out the conference, you have a bill passed. Sounds like a lot of checks and balances are in place to make sure that everything is looked at. Oh, absolutely. It's a very thorough process. Um, and we have really, really amazing staff in Maryland through the Department of Legislative Services that really help us navigate all of our ideas and help them become reality. You know, I know you were just recently sworn in this past February. So, like, I'm not sure of how soon you get going on your responsibilities as a delegate, but it sounds like this is a big thing for you to have your first bill passed so soon after being sworn in. No, oh, it's huge. You know, I came in on day 45, which is the halfway mark for our 90-day sessions. In Maryland, we only legislate January through April. 
Um, and then the other nine months on the interim, that's when individual members are allowed to work second jobs. And so coming in on the halfway point, I wasn't sure if I would have the ability to be able to champion legislation, if I would be able to be part of that process. But I was, and I'm extremely grateful to be able to have, you know, this under my belt. How has it been, apart from having your first bill passed, transitioning into this new position as a delegate? It's been really interesting. You know, I've been involved in politics in Prince George's County in the state of Maryland since about 14. And so being elected now has definitely changed some of the relationships that I have. It's interesting how folks approach me. Also, it's been very interesting just navigating what life is like as an elected. It's very different. It's subtle, but it's different. The responsibilities are different. There are people always watching as they should be, right? We need to keep our electeds accountable, but you definitely sacrifice some of your anonymity being elected that I did not realize going into this as much. Like you'll go places and people already know who you are. So that's been very interesting having to just adjust and navigate to those realities. But, you know, being my full self in spaces has also been very interesting because there hasn't been anyone like me representing my county. You know, I'm the first openly LGBTQ person in the legislature from Prince George's, and there's a lot of responsibility and weight that comes with that. And so making sure that I'm the best representation and, and just steward of our community is also something that I'm really focused on. Starting at 14 in politics, sounds like that passion has been there for a long time. I've always just wanted to serve, whether it be through church, whether it be through school or other aspects of community service has always been at the core and the center of why I do anything. And so politics was just another avenue that I saw I could really make a difference in my service. And I also recognized that there wasn't anyone like me doing this work in Prince George's County, being part of student government and really being involved in local government through that involvement of student government, I noticed there was a void. And I've always been of the mind that, why not me? If there is an opportunity to do something amazing, why can't I be the person to do that? And so I've always tried to put myself in positions to serve. And this opportunity came about for the appointment. And so I went for it, even though I had ran for this seat twice already before letting folks know that this is where I want to be and this is where I want to serve in the Maryland House of Delegates. Okay. So when you mean void, you mean LGBT? Uh, yeah, okay. even in local politics, you know, we have a number of individuals now that are elected at the local level here in Prince George's that are openly gay, but not until maybe about, I think it was the 2020 election, you know, we finally got Mondaire Jones and Richie Torres at the national level that were Black gay men serving in Congress. But growing up, there was never anyone that I could look to on those stages to say, I could do this too. There's not really a path in which I can follow. I'm really forging my own trail that I hope other folks can follow and see that they too can join this field, they too can be successful, and they too can serve. It sounds like with wanting to fill that void too, that you were in acceptance of that part of yourself early on. Yeah, I came out at 13. Um, So my family has always known who I was. Being your own person is something that was instilled in me from a very young age. And, you know, we don't keep secrets in this household. And so, you know, forever, my mom has always taught me, you know, be your own person, row your own boat. That's just something that was instilled in us. And so coming out and being more so, I don't like the term coming out, more so inviting folks in 
uh, was just a natural kind of progression in my life, even though I was fairly young when it happened. I have an amazing family who has supported me and been the reason why I can do this work. I didn't mention, I kind of sort of know Prince George's County. I have family there in, in Bowie, Maryland. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I was actually there last May to early June. So I saw the placards that were up for elections. I saw uh, Governor Moore's and other people's, you know, the stuff that was out and about in the city of Bowie. No, signs are a big deal in Prince George's. If you do not have road signs, you are not really running. I'm trying to tell you, people will call you and say, hey, I don't really see your signs. And it's like, I'm busy doing other things. They'll be up. But no, signs are a huge deal uh, in our politics. I could definitely see something like that working. I was, yeah, driving around with my stepmom or my aunt or my brother and his wife. And, you know, I would start to recognize people because I would see them everywhere. I would see them in the neighborhood. And, you know, I come from Arizona, but come from a city like L.A., where I lived for a long time, being in Maryland and Prince George's County just felt like it created more of a community. No, absolutely. That's one of the reasons why I can't live anywhere else. Like I get physically homesick if I'm away too long. Mm-hmm. The sense of community has always been something that I valued because we really do embrace all of us. We're a fairly diverse county, majority minority jurisdiction, the second largest jurisdiction in the state of Maryland. And we have such a storied history here in the county. Everyone feels like it's home. And so it's one of those places where being able to serve our community, the community that raised me here in the Maryland General Assembly is, is really been an honor. Okay. So you're born and raised in Maryland? Yep. Born and raised Prince George's. I actually represent the district that I grew up in. So oh, I went wow. to high school, Parkdale High School right on Good Luck Road, went to St. Mary's Vanderbilt Hills right on Annapolis Road. So I am a son of Prince George's County. This is home and this is where I'll probably always be. So you are a graduate of Howard University. How was it attending school there? Howard is amazing. Howard's a family school for me as well. So my mom went to Howard. My little brother's at Howard right now. I have a bunch of, you know, family friends and and cousins and things that I've attended as well. And attending Howard was really just why I think service was such an extension of my career, why I felt like this could be something I can make a living off of. You know, truth and service is our motto at the university. And it was something that every opportunity I could get in terms of serving, whether it be internships or volunteer opportunities, or even just talking with professors and, and the, the classes and the coursework that we would do. Service was always at the center of that as well. I was able to really get exposed to the different opportunities on how I could make service a career. So in my freshman year, I was an intern for Congressman Elijah Cummings, who is an alum of the university um, and also was a Maryland congressman. And so being able to see him in action and be able to see the work that he was able to do really inspired me to want to do this work as well. But then you also have so many amazing, I mean, there's countless people that have walked through our campus that are doing or have done amazing work. And being part of that legacy was something that I really wanted to be part of. Now, mm-hmm. yeah. hearing the family legacy with the university, but kind of tying it into just at least for me coming from the West Coast, and this is not a a better than, less than, but just seeing these, this strong connection and this pride in being Black, but also, you know, that we can be Black and we can be successful. And it almost being that it's the expectation, not the exception, right? Like, we are great because we are great. 
and not because of anything else other than that. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to within an hour or two, you know, growing up in Prince George's County, I didn't have to go to like the black student thing in order to feel welcomed or accepted. All our students were black or first people of color. Same thing with Howard. If I was going to pay money to go somewhere, I didn't want to have to have an experience tailored for me. I wanted the entire experience tailored for me and that entire space welcoming for me. And so NHBCU was the only option. I actually only applied to Howard and Morehouse. Those were the only schools I applied to for college because I knew before anything else that I was attending a historically Black college or university. That was a principle for me that I just had to ensure that it happened. So you were involved in politics on the campus of Howard? Yeah, I'm a member of the, what is it called? The Young Democrats on campus. Don't quote me, but I think I was vice president of something. I think it was either communications or membership. Also got involved in the student government on campus. So I was a Howard University Student Association Senator my freshman year. And then I also was campaign manager for someone who ran for president of the student association. So always been involved. But because Howard is so close to Maryland, I also took advantage of opportunities to work in the General Assembly for the Legislative Latino Caucus. I also worked for Dosalem Pena Melanick, who is the chair of the Government Health and Government Operations Committee in Annapolis. I worked in her congressional campaign when I was at Howard as well. And so really was able to just get involved locally in my community because Howard was, you know, only a few minutes away. And so I was able to take advantage of both opportunities on campus and back at home. I'm guessing you were out during your time at Howard. I was, yeah. That's a good uh, story to put out there because we hear in media, or I've heard in media, that Black establishments are not as accepting. But the more that I interview people with this platform, I'm finding reasons for that not necessarily being as accurate as people would like it to be. I think accepting is an interesting word. I think there are a number of queer folks in these spaces. I think now they're being highlighted and appreciated in ways that before we were able to exist, but we weren't able to be celebrated. And I think now we understand the value of all of us and we're able to understand that celebrating one group doesn't mean you're not accepting or being celebratory of another. And I think ultimately, particularly at Howard, the work that Cascade, which is the LGBTQ student group there is doing, is really just highlighting the talent and, and ultimately the contribution that the LGBTQ community has consistently made on that campus. And I know a host of other campuses are doing that work as well. HRC, the Human Rights Campaign, actually has an HBCU division now, and they reach out to historically Black colleges and universities. I believe Leslie Hall is the director of that, and they do amazing work getting students in, getting their administration from student life in, and really cultivating relationships because we know queer folks exist. Queer folks are Black as well, and we deserve to have spaces where we can be celebrated for our talents and our contributions. Yeah, very much so. And what was the name of the organization on Howard again? Cascade? Cascade, yep. I definitely have to do some research on that. You mentioned that you had campaigned twice to become a delegate. What kept you in the game, like just for yourself? I know your passion is there. I definitely feel that. But what kept you going? Well, one, you know, I genuinely felt I could do the most work at the state level. I feel like there's a lot of ability and opportunity 
here in Maryland, because we are a Democratic supermajority, to be able to pass really groundbreaking legislation. I think state legislatures are like petri dishes of policy, right? We get to kind of play around with ideas that oftentimes get stolen by the national level and they're successful. But at the state level, we can be just really an incubator of thoughts. And I thought, why not go to the state level and really try to make as large of an impact as I can for as long as I can? The second reason is because I felt like I could do a better job than the people that were doing it. Um, it was very much that simple. I, I just felt like the folks that were currently representing us didn't fully share the values that I knew our community had. And I knew I'd be a much better voice and representation for all of us than the current crop of folks. What's that saying? If you don't see it, then try to make it happen. Oh, yeah. And, and that's also part of it, too, right? Mm. Like the history, the historic part of it about being the first was cool, but I also understood that me not being there or someone of our community not being there deterred other people from thinking that we could. And mm -hmm. so a lot of this was also being able to prove, no, we can run and win in a predominantly Black jurisdiction that has the most churches of any jurisdiction in the entire state. People have certain beliefs about who we are as Prince Georgians, and my election in part was to show that that's not who we are that we are defined by these values and these sets of ideals. And this is where we're moving forward to. Mm -hmm. I look forward to sharing with my family that I spoke to you today. <laughs> oh, I appreciate you reaching out. You know, unfortunately your family's not in the 22nd district, but they're right next door in the 23rd. They're in Bowie. They're represented by some amazing folks. Actually, my seatmate on the floor of the house is uh, Delegate Kim Taylor who represents the Bowie area. So I have to let them know that you have family and, and have Kim reach out as well. So, yeah, yeah. And I'm going to look her up, too, because like I said, I remember the signs out. And if I recognize her, ah, I used to see you. <laughs> <laughs> and trust me, we love that because there's a lot of money involved in running. And so when people invest in these signs, you know, you really don't know. Of course, the election results kind of give you an indication of whether or not people saw you or whether or not people support you. But ultimately, people have to make choices. Elections oftentimes are about dancing with the devil you know versus the devil you don't. Because a lot of times I have to remind myself that politics isn't the world in which everyone revolves around. Like folks have real issues that they're, you know, tackling and going through. They have stuff that they're, you know, celebrating and triumphing through. And so they're not thinking about who their delegate is or who's running to be their next delegate. They're just like, look, I know this person, I know this name. I don't know these names. I know this person. I'm going to vote for governor. I don't know who's running on these other elections. And so when you acknowledge someone's, you know, work product and being able to say, oh, that sign was good. Or I remember that. That that means a lot because there's a lot of energy and resources that are put in uh, and passion that's put into to putting yourself out there and running for office. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll call myself out. You know, I vote, but I need to be more cognizant of who is in our offices because yeah, I think it's important. I'm definitely learning that as I get older, that I focused on the national level as far as the president, but it's the people within communities. You know, I need to get to know more. I need to find out who they are and how I can contribute. It's a two-way street, right? Folks in elected office need to do, I think, a better job at engaging and finding multiple ways and platforms to reach folks. Mm -hmm. But I also think folks need to take time to educate themselves on how to connect or how to navigate government as well. Also recognize that oftentimes our systems are designed 
in a dangerous way, right? They don't want you to be able to figure out who's responsible for what or how to get certain services or how to do certain things. And so a large part of what I've been able to do well before I was elected was help individuals navigate the complexities of local government in particular. There's a lot of nuance that gets involved. For example, you need your street cleaned, depending on what type of street it is and what the right of ways are, you can be talking to three different agencies. And so being able to understand that is like having an additional education or degree. And so making it easy for folks is something that I specialize in and something I'm, I'm really proud of. Thank you. And thank you for uh, <laughs> just putting a little seed in, in there for me to just kind of expand my horizons. So you're Afro-Latino. What is your background with that? Yeah, so my father's family is from Puerto Rico. So my full name is Ashanti Fernando Martinez, and I get that from my dad's side. They are Puerto Rico, they're like more Black, Indigenous Puerto Ricans than what you would see traditionally. Like they're not J-Lo, like no one in my family looks like J-Lo, but mm-hmm. we have been in Puerto Rico for a very, very long time. And then my grandfather moved to D.C. from San Juan, I want to say a little over 60 years ago. And so we've been in the mainland U.S. since. You just sparked a memory. I was reading something years ago about a Afro-Latino from Puerto Rico who came to, I think it might have been D.C. and how communities there grew. And that was educational for me. I didn't really become aware of uh, Afro-Latino communities until the late 90s. And that just really opened my eyes to how much bigger the world of people of African descent is outside of the United States. It's huge. I don't think people realize how large the diaspora is and how diverse it is. You know, you think about Brazil, for example, has the second largest population of Black people after Nigeria. Mm-hmm. You don't think about that, right? They don't speak Spanish, but they very much are still Afro-Latino. Even in the United States, we have more Puerto Ricans on mainland U.S. than in the island because of a lot of the opportunities and a lot of just the push to come to the mainland for success, for what was out there. There's large pockets of folks in New York and Chicago and Philly, DC, you know, of course, Florida. And so you find that there's huge communities that you would never know speak Spanish because part of assimilating is the immigrant story, being able to find community amongst African-Americans or other groups is all of our story. I think a lot of it has also been intentional to kind of make folks think you're alone, when in reality, I think there's a lot more Black people than we've tried to internally realize on this earth. How does your experience or that being a part of your makeup coming into politics, how do you feel that will positively impact your position as a delegate in Maryland? It definitely gives me a different perspective. I truly believe lived experience is very valued and oftentimes is lacking in policy. But because I'm now at that table where I have a voice and a vote and I can make decisions, I know that particular communities won't be overlooked and left behind. Mm-hmm. I think too, in community, having representation really matters. There hasn't been anyone like me. There's no other male Afro-Latinos in Prince George's County that do politics. Like, mm-hmm. there just isn't. It's myself. There's uh, my mentor, Jocelyn Pena-Melanek, that I mentioned. She's from the Dominican Republic. She's Afro-Latina. There's Cindy Tavares, who's also from the Dominican Republic. But there's no other men that are actively and engaged in this work in the county. There's one other person in the state, Gabe Acevedo, 
who I had the pleasure of serving with in the legislature, but he's from Montgomery County. He's actually the first openly gay man of color in the Maryland General Assembly. That's only what, three, four people in a legislature of almost 200. So we're woefully underrepresented, but because we're there, we're able to advocate in ways that if we were outside the chamber, we never would be able to. You mentioned earlier that you didn't see that representation when you were growing up and now you're that representation. Yeah. And that's the thing about being the first for me is how can I make sure I'm not the last? Like I'm always looking for opportunities or ways to be a resource to others. So whether that's you want to run for office, you want to help support other people run for office, you have an idea that you want presented, you want experience, you want to work in my office, whatever it is, I'm here to be a resource because I understand what the hurdles and obstacles look like. And it's not okay for me to continue to allow those things to exist. It's how do we dismantle those things to make it easier for the next person of color, the next openly gay Afro-Latino person in the county to be able to run and be successful in whatever they choose to do. Now, you mentioned, you know, 14, that was when you really got involved in politics. But apart from that, who were you coming up and how have other aspects of who you are informed how you lead the way today in creating policy? It's a good question. That's a really good question. I think sports really help shape kind of how I build relationships. Growing up, I played team sports year round. So I played basketball, baseball, and soccer pretty much year round until high school. And then once I got into high school, I played basketball for one semester freshman year. I was like, don't want to do this anymore. And then got involved a little bit in the track and field at a through for shot put. But team sports, I think, really allowed me to be able to cultivate just so many life skills, whether it be how to team build, how to work on a team, how to lead a team, but also how to just be a team player and follow other people's leadership, how to develop a plan, right? When you're playing these sports, you have to have strategies around how you get the win, how do you get the goal, how do you defend against your competitors, but you also have to understand how it feels to lose and understand what loss looks like how to recover from that and how to build yourself so that you can fight again. And so a lot of who I was before I got into politics was definitely formed from my experiences playing sports growing up. My apologies if I've been misunderstood. Is being a delegate a full-time position? Sort of. So we legislate, meaning that we're in Annapolis 90 days a year. The other nine months, there are individuals that full-time, they're, you know, still in Annapolis, they're, you know, working on bills, you know, they're in the community every day. There's others that have, like myself, another full-time job and still do community stuff. And it's kind of like a hybrid type of model, but you're always a delegate. Uh, And that's what I tell folks, even though it's considered a citizen's legislature or a part-time legislature, it is full-time work. And so even though we don't get compensated for all of the work that we're, we're doing, it is very much a lot. Like even today, I have two community events after this. I have another community event tomorrow. I have three this weekend. That is just the beginning of the interim. And as the summer comes on, I'm sure we'll have more. And I still have to work my other job as well. So it is, depending on how you work it, very much a full-time job. Okay. And how long do you serve for a term? Four years. There are no term limits. And so that's what's also been very interesting is that a number of delegates who have been serving for a very, very long time have been resigning 
you have a number of folks that have been in the legislature 20, 30, 40 years that are now leaving. And so I'm coming into a legislature that has a lot of new energy, a lot of new folks, either they've been appointed or just elected in this last election. And so it's been really exciting to be able to connect with people and share ideas amongst a really, really large freshman class. Okay. If I did my research correctly, you're 26. Is mm-hmm. that an average age? Is that young for going into it? It's on the younger side. You know, we have had individuals get elected at like 21, 22, 23. You know, when I ran, if I would have won, I would have been 21 years old, which is the minimum age you have to be to run for delegate. A lot of other folks that I'm serving with, there's a number of us that are under 30. That's, I guess, the average age of entry right now, that time frame. There's 141 of us in the house. There's probably six or seven of us under 30. Okay. Under 40, I think, would even grow even larger. And I think under 40, we have probably like maybe 20 to 25 of us. So as you continue to go higher in age, the number tends to grow. Okay. That changes my casting when I think of politicians. Oftentimes, it's like a politician is someone who's older. So we do have a number of seasoned folks, as I like to call them. This might have changed since we had some shakeup with the movement of folks. But when I ran this last cycle, when I first started, I looked at the average age, and the average age in the legislature was 55, I think, years old. I think with this influx of new folks, that might have gone down a little bit, but that was pretty much the average age. So you've passed your first bill. What's next for you? So right now, taking a little bit of a break and trying to like just get settled back with work in my second job. But um, starting in the summer, I'm going to be working with advocates and stakeholders around some of the bill ideas that I have. I really want to pre-file my bills, which means before session starts, you already get them ready to go so that you can really start working through the committee process and they're the first couple of bills introduced so that if there are any hiccups, you can settle that earlier in the session. The key is you want your bills done early so that you don't have to worry about the midnight dash on Sandy die or some of the scheduling issues that start to come as the legislature just starts inching towards, you know, the end. Um, so that's what my interim looks like. It's just working with stakeholders over the interim on some ideas that I have. Okay. Now, you're a political science and government major. That's your degree from Howard? Political science, yep. Is your work connected to that? I'll say that I work in government and I work in communications. You don't really need a degree for what I do. I hate to say it like that. It's mainly just how do we storytell? I work for the county council in Prince George's County. And so it's like, how do we tell the council story? How do we educate folks on what's happening and how to engage or how to get involved? And so the policy degree, I think, helps you understand the purpose or kind of the process in what we're doing. I don't do policy at the council at all. We have now people rising up from city politics to state to national. Is it too soon to ask if that's something you would like to do? I honestly don't have aspirations for offices as much as impact. So as long as I feel like I can make a difference, whatever that difference is, I'm going to go for it. Right now, being a state legislator, I feel like I have a lot of opportunity. 
and I plan on just continuing to do really good work on behalf of my constituents in my county. But if there's opportunities that present themselves and it makes sense, I'm not ever going to say no. One thing you'll learn about me is I'm always going to bet on myself. But if there's an opportunity that I think, like I said, makes sense at the moment, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to write that one down after this call. <laughs> I think it's important to believe in a purpose and believe that you're the person that can do that. I mean, it's, it's just something that's always been instilled. I mean, like, you know, I have amazing parents who always wanted us to know that, like, we are here for a reason. There is no room we don't belong in. And ultimately that whatever we want to do, we can do it as long as we work extremely hard. You're disciplined and we do whatever is necessary, we can get it done. And I'm a testament to that. I really wanted to win this last election cycle. I lost by 700 votes, but because of my relationships, because I was consistent with the work product that I had, it was good. And a lot of community members supported me even after I lost. Like I have a number of people that were calling and texting me saying, I'm going to write you in this November, even though you're not on the ballot. Being able to really build those genuine relationships helped me get to where I am today. And when the appointment came up about six months after the election, it was pretty much unanimous that folks wanted me to be the person selected to serve. And that's why I didn't have any competition in the appointment process. I was the only one to apply. I had the support of the entire district that I serve in from the senator to the other two delegates that I serve with. So I'm really, really proud of what I've been able to accomplish so far and be in the position that I'm in. Mm. You're reinforcing my own journey these last three and a half years, mainly being outside of the U.S. and changing my career trajectory, the importance of relationships, the importance of fostering relationships. Whatever you do, you're going to do it with people. I've always just believed that relationships are the currency of life. Like you need to have individuals that you can call on to be able to use as a resource, but also it's a two-way street. You've got to be a resource to folks as well. And so being able to be resourceful is something that I genuinely love to do. I genuinely love to help folks and that helps with the fostering of relationships. You know, speaking with you today, you know, of course, it is important to think of the people ahead of me who can positively impact me. Or a friend of mine used to say, you never know where you're going to find your angels. But with speaking with you today, I'm reminded also look for those who are behind me as far as age, because I, I never know what I might hear that can guide me and help me. So thank you for that. Well, I appreciate that. No, I, I think we all have some ability to share and just give each other something. I think every person leaves a little bit of themselves when you meet them. And so being able to share with you just kind of some of my guiding principles and, and what helps shape what I do every day is an honor. I appreciate you reaching out because I think we all can learn from each other. Mm, very much so. Any final thoughts or insights? No, I just want to thank you again for sharing your platform with me, providing a space for us to talk about my career as I, I continue to grow and to learn and to just navigate the world of politics as an openly gay Black man. You know, there's not a lot of us in these spaces. So it's important that we're able to connect and share stories and just talk shop and be able to really understand that we can do this work and our communities deserve us to show up and do this work as well. Speaking of connecting, where can we 
connect with you online to learn more about you, about the delegates in Maryland, and then just where you're progressing to. So I'm on all platforms. So you can find me on Facebook at Ashanti Martinez, on Instagram at Ashanti F. Martinez, on Twitter, Martinez for Maryland, F-O-R-M-D. And then martinezformaryland.com is the website. If you go to the website, you can also connect to all the socials there. Also have, if you live in District 22 and you happen to be listening to this and you're in college, we have delegate scholarships. I would love to give you some of that money. So please connect with us. There's a link to the scholarships on there as well. Again, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. And I hope your cold goes away very soon. Uh, you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends, too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time. <laughs>